You are now in the mix with the Atomic Podcast, where we blow up the news. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from the Upper West Side, New York City, where we blow up the news on a verbal scale. My guest today, she's an American film and TV director and producer, and she is awesome, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Ms. Rachel Talali. Am I pronouncing it right? I think I butchered your last name, but am I pronouncing it right? <laughs> you did. You just butchered it. Talali. Talalay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Talalay, don't worry, people butcher my name from Ephraim to Ephraim or whatever, so I get that all the time, so, how you doing today? Okay, I can, I can recover from having my name butchered. <laughs> I, I apologize again, I apologize for again, and it's not gonna no, be, no, no. it's not, it's not gonna be edited, so people could definitely hear how I said it, so, <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, so, um, you worked on all sort of projects and as a producer and a director for television and movie theaters. Um, how did you get your start in the business? I was one of those people who, this is what I wanted to do and this is what I had to do, and I got my first job volunt- I saw an ad in the Baltimore City paper for John Waters' Polyester, and I went and said, I make great coffee, um, which was a complete lie. I had no clue how to make coffee. <laughs> I didn't drink coffee. Um, but that's how you're supposed to get your... Uh, start is by lying your way into the business, and I actually made my way up through production, um, something that's very difficult to do now, but there were a lot of independent films there, and I learned my trade through um, work. Oh. Did you meet a lot of connections along the way, though, too, as well, like until you get your beginnings, you start? It's, it's all about connections. It's all about using them. I was I was quite shy. I wasn't very good at using them, but it. Um, I understood that you. We had a. You know, I grew a group of friends, and we worked together, and we told each other about other jobs. And there were enough. In, there was enough independent, low budget production in Los Angeles that we were all able to help each other, and that's what it was like in the '80s because the video cassette world grew that kind. Those kind of films. Oh. I was really lucky. I, I was incredibly fortunate because there were a whole bunch of companies that came out during, that started during that time period because of the video cassette world, and I happened to land um, working with New Line. And what was so fortunate about that was that they were the company that survived. Yeah, yeah. New Line was out for a while. Then you had like a lot of independent companies like Canon Films, I believe, right? And um, yeah. Full Moon Entertainment, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. And then, I mean, there were a whole bunch of them, and a lot of my close friends have gone on and done incredibly well, but they started out on different uh, independent companies, and a lot of the companies didn't survive, and they didn't have, uh, whereas I stayed with a company that continued to, to make films. Oh, but you started <laughs> off as, as a producer, though, right? Yeah, well, I started out in production, production. so I was doing all the production jobs. I was... And I had a math background, so they made me an accountant, and uh, which was useful because I learned where all the money went, and that's what it's all about. So it was a it was a boring but useful skill, and um, I didn't do it for very long. I didn't like doing it. Um, people blame you. You know, you, you pay them um, what they put in their time card, and then they come and yell at you and say you didn't pay me enough. And you're like, well, you know, I just put the calculations to the payroll company. And now you're here screaming at me, and you're shooting the messenger. So after that gets tiring pretty quickly. 
but what it did allow me to do was learn all the details of how a film was made um, from a financial standpoint, and then I was able to be involved with it from a production standpoint. Oh, so how how did you transition from production to director? You said that you made like a lot of connections. You had to did you schmooze with somebody, or how did it how did it come about? Like, I mean, who did I sleep with? To, <laughs> <laughs> well, did you? <laughs> that's always that's always, always the jokes. It doesn't work so well with your email. Um, the, uh, the no, I, I, Nightmare on Elm Street was my stepping stone. So New yeah. Line was my stepping stone, and Nightmare was my stepping stone. So I was the assistant production manager on the first Nightmare, and then they came back for part two and said, will you do that job again? I mean, this is a pretty well-known story now that I came back. I said, no, 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 I want to be production manager. And then when they came to me for part three and said, will you be the production manager? And I said, no, I want to line produce. And that's really how I got my all my opportunities was because New Line uh, gave them to me through the Nightmare films. And once Nightmare 3 was so successful and near killed me making that film, um, and we did so much in that film. I still can't believe what we did for that amount of money on that film. And because of that, I got, you know, that was the ultimate proving ground. So after that, they put me on staff and put, made me a producer. And then when part six came around and I'd watched all the directors be so successful, I said, I'd really like to have this opportunity. And I wasn't sure they were going to give it to me, but fortunately for me, they did. Yeah, I know, speaking of, you know, well, you jumped into it, but let me just elaborate more on it. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies have become ingrained in American film, cult in film culture for, like, years. Everybody knows Freddy Krueger is synonymous with Nightmare on Elm Street, and that's where you make the, your directorial um, debut. Um, did you have a lot of help with that, or, like, how did you feel that your, how did you put, besides killing off Freddy, which you, which you did in that movie, how did you feel you made your stamp? you know, being your first directorial debut, like, what did you do? Like, how did you come together? I, I thought that, that I knew the Nightmare franchise inside out, having yeah. worked on five of the first six films. And so, and being involved in the development, and as a producer on those films, I was intimately involved in everything except directing actors. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I, I was, you know, I knew how we were, I knew how we put the, the effects together. And I knew the crew really well, and I understood all the elements of making the film, I had not spent any time directing actors, so that was the, the scary. Um, but what's different about what was different about Part Six was that there was a saturation in the, and, and I don't think people understand this. Now, why would they? But there was a real saturation in the marketplace by the time we made Part Six. Because mm -hmm. Part Three was so successful, we made Part Three, Part Four, and Part Five a year apart. So by the time we'd made three movies in a row a year apart, the audience was um, much less interested by part five. So the box office for part five had declined, and New Line was still anxious to milk everything they could out of the franchise, and they wanted to, they agreed to make part six, and it was my idea to call it Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and put the pressure on the idea that the way to get the audience more interested was to say this is going to be the final one. Yeah. Um, whether or not it was the final one was never really clear because, of, you know, the box office drives everything. Uh, but the approach was that because there was a declining box office in part five, that we would make it the final one. Um, so I'm not saying it was all a scam. I'm just saying that this was, it wasn't clear, but it was a good, I, since 
there was a chance that it would be the final one. We may as well say it was. And in a lot of ways, it was the end of that type of the series because the next one was Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is a completely different type of film. Yeah. And then, and then the way the franchise went, they suddenly started. They went from spending five million dollars on them to spending seventy million dollars on them. So that's a different film too. Yeah. But um, uh, and when for so for part six, what we were looking for was something that was somewhat different. And um, as I've said before, the um, uh, Twin Peaks was hugely successful at that point. It was a show that was getting attention, and so uh, Mike DeLuca, who wrote um, Freddy's Dead, and I were looking for something that was a little bit more off-kilter, with a little bit less of the, uh, the, of the identical franchise. And that's the direction we went with for Freddy's Dead, but... It has, it feels more dated, I think, than some of the other um, episodes of, in the franchise. Yeah. It's different, and it feels, and it, and it didn't age as well because we pushed the envelope toward digital. We were right on the cusp of digital without having the money or the ability to be innovative with digital. And so things like the, I mean, now it's actually come around where they seem quaintly, um, uh, you know, Game Boy, um, the Game Boy scene, um, yeah. and uh, I'm playing with, now I'm playing with power, now that's come back as a nostalgia thing. Yeah. There was a period of time where it just looked like not very good effects, and I really feel like I took a lot, it on the chin for a long time, with, oh, this isn't as innovative as the straightforward effects from parts three and four, because um, we were trying to do something without the money. We were trying to push and now it doesn't seem that way because it just seems like, well, that's, you know, 8-bit is cool again. Yeah, that's true. Like, you know, like when you see it, you know, with the power glove, the Nintendo, like it was it was in that era. It was at that time, you know. Some movies remain timeless, and I think that sort that film is sort of timeless when you watch it now. Like, you know, if I'm passing it by on Sci-Fi Channel, I can sit and watch it and, you know, just remember. And, you know, the cool cameo, the Johnny Depp cameo, and the, like, the storyline itself, it harkens back to part one where if you take Freddy out of the dream, he's vulnerable. So, you know, in a way, like the, the beginning of the first from Freddy movie, it pretty much tells you how to kill him from the beginning. And, you know, it's it sort of, you, you hearken on that, you know? You, yes. We, were trying to, we always tried to be respectful to the story, yeah. to, you know, and to what was so brilliant about Wes's original film. Um, what I didn't concentrate on was how to go back and make it scary again. Yeah. Um, we had we had really um, we had really had a much greater success in the box office when they were less scary, mm-hmm. and so I went toward. Uh, more gimmicks, less scary. Now I wouldn't do that. Now I would go for back to um, the original. Let's make it as scary as possible. But you know, I, 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 we're now talking about where I was in 1990. Yeah. Now you know, so it's very easy to second guess and to say. And I, you know, I read complaints online where it's like it's not the scary one. It's this and that. And it's, well, you didn't make four films in four years, like we did. Um, And that's one of the reasons why we were going for something different. There were, you know, mandates from New Line um, about certain things to do with it that you wouldn't know about. So it's very easy to be a back seat driver.
driver and say, you should have done this and you should have done that. And I'm the first person to look at my own flaws. But um, I also have to say that there were other things going on in the background and in our heads. That um, And there's a lot of elements of it that, because it's fun and pop culture that people respond to strongly as well. Yeah. And the thing is, by the time that movie was out, Freddy really honestly wasn't really that scary no more. Pretty much after the third one, it was more like action adventure and it was more it was more killings and more elaborate killings. You know, Freddy became like the centerpiece and he became the cliche king of the one liners. So, but you know, even by the time Freddy's Nightmare was out, it was he was he was really scary no more. You was just waiting to see the elaborate kills of the weakness of the kids, you know, how he would kill them. That's the only thing people look forward to. I thought at that time. So our job was to be creative with the, with the deaths. I mean, yeah. to, come with, to, to come up with the deaths and turn them on their you know ears and do different things. And part of in Freddy's Dead, part of what was different was playing around with Nintendo. Was playing around with pop culture. It was the sort of things we did with the Roach Motel in before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, we we played around with pop culture, and that worked very very well. I loved. You know, going to the audience, going to see the films in the theater with the audience and just watching them scream at the screen. And one of the things I find very interesting is that they always were fans of the kids as well as Freddy. So they weren't just, and, and I used to sometimes have to defend the films when people would say you're creating violence, you know, the, the whole, the whole story of, um, uh, uh, violent films create violent people. And so every so often, I would, which has absolutely been proven not to be the case. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I would have to go on sometimes and be the, the nice face of that and say, um, and, and, but we, we were never looking, the, the, you had to go and see the audience and see how much the audience rooted for the kids. Mm-hmm understand that this was not about rooting for violence and this was not about rooting for death. This was about rooting for the kids, the strength against Freddy and Freddy was, uh, and their evil parents who were clueless. So that was a really important part of all the stories was having clueless parents who the kids, who never understood what was really going on, just like real life. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Freddy, you could say, was like a metaphor for um, adulthood to teenagehood, you know, you know, rebellious against the parents and wanting to do things, you know, sort of like the, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise with like Jason, you know, that's absolutely, you know, um, getting into um, TV and films are both very different and involve different approaches. Do you find it um, easy to move from one to the other from TV and film? Well, I've never made a film since, a real film since um, I made Tank Girl, so mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it was very difficult moving to television from film and learning how to do television, learning how to do things in the amount of time, in the tiny amount of time that you did television for was a huge lesson for me, and <clears throat> I'm really glad. Now, I just work in television, and I work in a wide variety of television, so Sometimes I work on shows with lots of money, and sometimes I work on shows with no money. Mm-hmm. And I've basically learned how to negotiate all whatever is handed to me. So your job, the, the hard thing about television is how little time there is. Yeah. It's, often, it's often less about, I don't get a crane, than it is about, I have to shoot this in seven days. Mm-hmm. And how hard it is to just get that much work done in that amount of time. Yeah. Um. And that, then I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the, the, the lack of filmmaking, 
mean, the, the demise of the movie theater and the demise of films, the biggest concern is the fact that television has to be made so quickly that you lose the opportunity to experiment. And that's what's, and, and experiment both in shooting and in the editing room. And that's the concern I have about the loss of motion pictures and the, uh, the fact that the whole thing is an industry. But I also find it incredibly, wonderfully challenging to have to work within those parameters. Um, you worked on a number of well-known television series from like Wolf Lake, Ally McBeal. Is there any particular um, favorite you had in mind? And um, does it does it is it a difference when the shows are a higher budget than a show that's not on a higher budget for your creativity? It depends what the show is. It's not. It's definitely. Not, it's a combination of things. Number one always is how good is the script. Mm-hmm. So great, great writing is a lot easier <laughs> to work with than weak writing. Yeah. And, um, but I also, I love doing special effects. So for me, even though the hardest shows in television are the ones with the most action and the most effects, uh, I enjoy that the most. I enjoy the, all the creativity, all the things that I learned from doing the Nightmare series. Um, I use when I do effects films in effects TV shows. Mm-hmm. The best example, the best example is Doctor Who because yes. we had so many uh, effects, and they're the same types of effects as there's visual effects and there's mechanical effects, and all the tools that I had for making the nightmare films creatively for no for very little money, I used on Doctor Who to figure out how are we going to do this, what are our options, and how do we do it in this amount of time. Yeah. On Doctor Who is a show with a long history and mythology, and you know it's a franchise show. Do you feel any extra sense of pressure directing Death in Heaven and Dark Water? Um, I was terrified. I was <laughs> absolutely terrified. Yeah. I'm a sh- I'm, because I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. So and, am I. So am I. Uh, it was an incredible, incredible, and I had campaigned to get on the show. I really, really wanted to do the show, and. You're always afraid that, okay, I've campaigned and I've told them what a great job I'm going to do because that's what you have to do no matter what. You're not going to say, well, I don't know. You have to say, <laughs> I want to do this and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to work as hard as I can, but what if, I, what if all the things I knew didn't add up? What if, it, what if I got it wrong? And one of my favorite reviews ever was the one that said, Rachel Talalay just gets Doctor Who. Yeah. I w- that was the one that made me punch the air because that <laughs> Uh, you know, I thought, yes, somebody understands that what was important to me was really, was not what did I bring that was different. It was how did I bring m- my essence to what is so brilliant about Doctor Who. Yeah. And it, it, that actually harkens back to Freddie, too, because when we had all these different writers on Freddie, they always came in and tried to create a new type of Freddie. And we always, not always, but many of the writers, many of the scripts that were written that were thrown away, tried to create a new type of Freddy. And that's not what the audience wanted. The audience wanted Freddy, but in its own, in its own creative, different version, but not something that's completely different. So when you come in and say, I'm going to make this completely different, you're not respecting the audience and what they love. Mm-hmm. So we often had to throw away things where people created new rules. Uh, we don't want new rules. We want incredible creativity within the rules. Mm-hmm. So Doctor Who as well, I, and um, I was just, you know, am I good at, enough for this? Can I live up to this? 
live up to the um, history of this show, and which I had a huge appreciation for. So um, I'm so proud of those episodes. Yeah, I'm not saying that to blow smoke up your butt, but those two were probably one of the best two episodes of the season. They were really good, really good directed. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, not a problem, right. not a problem. Um, do you feel there's a big difference between the quality of writing and acting in, in, you know, in between American productions and British productions? That's a loaded question, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I shouldn't answer. There's great writers in both cases. I think that there's an advantage in the UK that there are fewer shows being made, and the structure of the way the UK used to run being more time was spent getting the scripts ready mm-hmm. than the demand on American television, where frequently, once your pilot is made and you're greenlit, you have a month to start the gravy train, and sorry, the, the runaway train of 22 episodes, and it's very hard to keep up the quality um, under, the, under that pressure, although some exceptional shows have been made like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that those structural things are different, but I think there are brilliant writers, obviously, in both places. Um, and I've been very fortunate to work with great writers in both places. <laughs> and there are many great writers in both places that I still want to work with. Mm-hmm. But the uh, British system, which now is being adopted more in the U.S. through mm-hmm. the Netflix shows and through Amazon shows, where you're making the limited series, the six parts, the ten parts, they do give the opportunity for more attention to be put to the writing, and that is advantageous. Yeah. Are are you are you going to direct any future episodes of Doctor Who's this, um, the upcoming season? Or um, I don't understand that question. No, no. I said, are you having? Are you, are you going to direct any new upcoming episodes? No, I, that's 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 my answer. I don't understand that question. Got gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, what should we call it? Um, Hollywood has been notorious reputation for excluding women and minorities. Have you ever felt as if a cast or crew may have treated you differently, maybe unfairly, because you was a woman? Yes, and that's a very long and complicated and difficult um, question because okay. how do you how do you prove how do you, you the the most indication that I've had. Mm -hmm. that I've been treated different. There's several examples, but the most indication you have that you're being treated differently is how frequently the crew will say to you, they would never do that to a guy. They would never say that to a guy. They would have listened better if you were a guy. You hear it like that. Wow. But you don't go go into it thinking, gosh, I'm being treated differently, or your head doesn't go to a space where you're all paranoid, or you're trying to show people that you're, that it's like this. You, but then when somebody says, to, you know, you think, God, that was really frustrating, or they didn't listen to me. And then the next thing you know, somebody said, you know, that's really true. They never would have done that to a guy. So I don't live my life being massively paranoid about it. Mm-hmm. I fought very hard to depart. Hang on one second, I'm just going to, my battery's dying. Okay. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Uh, I don't think that it's helpful to anyone to live your life um, and to go into any show being paranoid or being concerned about it. You look at the statistics and it's clear that it's been exceedingly difficult for women. Mm-hmm. But you just go and you do the best possible job you can. And I 
the crew will because the only real way to learn about what is going on when you're not there is what the crew tells you. And they'll say, oh, the guy before you was really lazy, and he was reading his newspaper the whole time. And you think, wow, if I picked up my, if I picked up a newspaper on set, I would be fired the next day. <laughs> um, so, and maybe that's paranoia too, but I see that, that, you, that you're being told you need to be more, you're, you're frequently told you need to be more this or more that. And I don't think that men are told that like women are. You need to be more aggressive, you need to be louder, you need to be, and I don't want to be that person. Um, I find that less now because I have so much experience that I don't think, I think I would just look cross-eyed at somebody who would say, you need to be louder. <laughs> louder. <laughs> but yes, I think it's a significant problem. I think it's very hard for training young people, younger, newer, I should say not younger, but newer directors trying to break in to um, the, being a woman and still having these issues within the industry, still having the statistics, if anything, just to say the statistics are against them. All right. Um, as a director, is there anything you would have liked to have directed that you never got a chance to direct, such such as, such as like a movie from the past like Casablanca or anything similar, like any classic movies? Well, I, I, I love old um, romantic films. I mean, I wish I'd made, I wish I'd made Gone, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's um, a excellent real, movie. I have a real a romantic streak. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I love the films of the 40s. I um, I, and I loved, uh, as a teenager, I loved all, I loved uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and Gene Kelly, I wish I'd made the Singing in the Rain, um, and because I'm not overly uh, brilliant with music, I fantasize about being a brilliant dancer, and um, so those are the movies that I, I would love to have made. Um, but I think epic things like Gone with the Wind, a book that I absolutely adored, uh, flaws and all. And, um, you know, now I want to make a, I want to do one of the Marvel, I really want to do one of the Marvel films. Oh, that would be excellent. Um, Captain Marvel's up there. I, I don't know if they found a director yet, but definitely put, you know, put your name out there. <laughs> you know, and um, are you, are you a fan of the DC universe as well? Um, I'm less in the DC universe than in the Marvel universe. Um, I mean, yes, I'm a fan, but my comic book reading tendencies go to Vertigo and to uh, Marvel before they go to DC. Just <laughs> gotcha. not, not, not for any reason than just once you start in one, uni once you start grow up in one universe, um, it, it, there's some work to get to go in the other direction. That's not to cast aspersions on the DC universe in any way. It just happened to be the way I ended up going. Okay. And speaking of like the, I made no free time. That's all. <laughs> speaking of the comic world, Tanker was a highly successful cartoon set in post-apocalyptic Australia, sort in the vein of a female version of Mad Max. The movie became a cult classic. How much creative freedom do you have working on that movie? Uh, less than zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, uh, that's an ugly backstory, but um. I started out with a, I started out with a reasonable amount of creative freedom, okay. uh, and then the studio wasn't happy with the fact that I really pushed the envelope. And um, when we came to editing, they really freaked out. <laughs> but 
decide how far we'd push the envelope and cut it way back. And so the resulting film, it was just, it really was ahead of its time because yeah. four, or five, four or five years later, they wouldn't have been offended by the things that offended them. Once South Park was successful and the South Park movie came out, Tank Girl seems, I mean, if you look at Tank Girl now and you say, well, okay, that was a hard R movie and now it's barely a PG-13. Yeah. Um, and that's the difference is that they were shocked by it and really wanted to cut. They just had to cut back on anything that pushed the envelope. So it's kind of a messy movie um, because of that. But what we did have is a lot of freedom in the, the whole visual sense of the movie is still there, even if the plot sense isn't there, the visual sense is there. Yeah. Like you said, I think you said it best. The movie was way ahead of its time. You know, I think if you was to do Tank Girl now with the stuff that we have now, I it would be right up there. Oh. You know, yeah. I mean, it'd be completely. It would be a completely different experience, and also what you can do with digital effects. Like, all the movies I made were prior to uh, digital di- digital effects. Everything was made with um, optical effects, and that's very expensive, very complicated, and you need to have a Stanley Kubrick mind. To really do, and a Jim Cameron mind to really do those things innovatively. Mm-hmm. And um, now with digital, it's completely different. You can have those incredible ideas and find and find ways to do it just on the computer. It's quite, I wouldn't say simple because you still have to shoot it very well, but it, it the technology is all there. But back then, every single thing we did, I mean, it, it just looking at putting people in mirrors and Freddy. Yeah. how complicated the physics was to do those things. The physics problems that we had to work on in the Freddy films. Yeah. And trying to do that sort of things, those sort of things in television. So now, so hard. Nobody has time to let you work out the water displacement in the waterbed when you slash it open. Somebody's dying yeah. on it. Oh, that was a classic scene. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Nobody, you know, but we had to, I mean, the design of the tank and stuff, when you realize how we did that for no money, the design of that tank was an engineering feat. Yeah. Really great. That's really cool. But now you, your engineering feats are only on the big, big, big movies where you have time and money to work that those things out. Um, um, many Stephen King novels have been turned into movies or TV shows in particular such as Haven and The Dead Zone you worked on both I would imagine Stephen King would have been a horror horror or um, paranormal fan's dream how do you like working on these shows? Uh, I, they were great I particularly enjoyed working on Dead Zone yeah. um, and I was a big Stephen King fan from you know early, early on I mean they're absolutely great books I loved you know ones that are less trendy besides, besides Carrie and um, The Shining. I loved uh, I loved Cujo, for instance. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just great things that have been done with with the, in the early days of Stephen King films. Uh, Dead Zone was fun because it was um, there was just a lot of room to go into a whole bunch of different worlds in Dead Zone. And you never knew what that you were going to get. when you. It was one of those shows where the scripts varied hugely in a good way, and so you never know knew what story you were going to get. It was great. Yeah. Also, um, Ali, Big, um, Ali McBeal, did directing any of those episodes resonate personally with you? <laughs> well, that's a funny one. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I was never an insane single. <laughs> I mean, I loved working on that show. It was so much fun. It was so outrageous. It was yeah. more like working 
some ways, it had its John Waters elements in some ways because of the musical side and just crazy things happened for no reason. And it, those actors, just genius, absolute genius. It was a joy. The writing was joyous. But no, it wasn't part of that. <laughs> it was part of my personal life, though. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, um, how about um, Supernatural? It's a show with a long-established mythology surrounding the show and its characters. Did you feel a need to become acquainted with that mythology in, or, in order to do what was needed to do a successfully direct to successfully direct it? I think that's true with all shows that you should understand. You can't just walk in and direct an episode. And you shouldn't just walk in and direct an episode. You do have to understand the mythology. And it's difficult when you walk into a show in season three or season five. Or, um, I mean, I, I worked on season one of, of Supernatural, so it wasn't that wasn't an issue. I mean, it was just a matter of getting to know what the show was. But if you've walked in now to season 10 or 11, yeah, you've yourself to understand, to understand a lot of the history. Yeah. Uh, that's what, yeah, I don't think you can direct just based on the words in the page on one specific script. You have to understand backstory of all your characters. And you can't always catch up. A lot. I mean, I couldn't watch every single Doctor Who for <laughs> time that I was prepping, watch uh, relevant episodes, including original episodes with Cybermen, uh, as well as, I mean, classic episodes with Cybermen, as well as the newer episodes. Who was was your doctor? Who was my doctor? Uh, Tom Baker. Uh, See, I I got started off um, Christopher Christopher Eccleston on um, The Knife Doctor. That's when I got hooked on. I was like, wow. So yeah, I have a, I have the historic doctor, and then all of the new doctors are my doctors. I mean, they they all all four of them have so much going for them, and it would not be politic to to, to give a preference. <laughs> yeah, you see, what I like about that show is because it's not it's not the the actor that makes the show; it's the character. You know, like certain shows, like yeah. you know the lead. If the lead leaves, people will not. You know how people watch The Walking Dead. If Daryl leaves, we're not going to watch the show no more or anything like that. Doctor Who is like so much bigger than that. You know, it's all yeah. about the character. That's why I, I you know, I totally love Doctor Who. But I don't want you know, I don't want to keep talking about Doctor Who because um, well, I want to ask you just a few more questions before I get off um get offline with you. Um, do you feel um um, direct. You said you said you feel more. It's better TV than film. Would you ever think about getting back into film, into directing a, a, a feature film? Yeah, I'd love to uh, do a film again. Um, it's just that I think the marketplace. It's very, very, very difficult in the marketplace. So I'm on this, you know, mission to get to do a Marvel film, as I said. Yes. But you know, from <laughs> this mission in my house. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, avoiding to walk on water so that I can get in the door of Marvel. But yes, I mean, one it, one always wants to do to do feature films. But television is now the great white hope. I mean, television has changed so much that there are great opportunities in it. Well, so, um, well, I'm, saying, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm lucky to do both worlds. I mean, I've just been incredibly lucky. Yeah, speaking of Marvel, I'm um Daredevil. I just binge watched Daredevil, which is an awesome show. Um, you know, they're they're also filming Luke Cage, I mean, Jessica Jones right now, Luke Cage is going to yeah. film, I believe, next year. Um, you should definitely look into that, because, you know, I'm sure they're definitely going to need a few directors for that, and I think that will be right up your alley. Yep. Yeah. You know, um, um, you worked on everything from Doctor Who to, to Hairspray. What's next for Rachel? What's next for you? I just 
finished a real um, passion piece, um, which is the story, based on a true story in Vancouver about um, a serial killer who uh, was able to kill um, 49 women and the police, the police, because they were prostitutes and, and homeless women, the police uh, ignored what was going on. And it's based on an award-winning book, and it's about really, a, it's not the story of the serial killer, it's the story of the women, mm-hmm. and um, what happened, and how they had to band together, and what they had to do to get attention from the police. And it's a very, um, you know, it's one of those meaningful films. It was very uh, emotional to work on it. Um, we worked with the families of some of the women who were killed, and um, it has a lot, and this was, he was captured in 2002, so this is not a long time ago, and it has a lot of resonance for today and for today's society, and there are still many stories like this all over the world, and uh, so I'm hoping that it will be a show that people want to watch because it uh, resonates with them about uh, underprivileged, you know, and, and people who don't have a voice because of their circumstances. So I'm hoping that I made a film that people want to see. Um, so that's what I'm just, and so what I'm doing right now is, ed- is working on editing that. Oh, okay. Um, anything else coming up in the future, or that's pretty much, that, that, that's pretty much it for now? That's pretty much it for now. Oh, all right, Rachel. Um, I appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you so much. Um, you're out there in social media. Is there anything else you want to plug, or anything you want to say? Or? Uh, not at the moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're good, Rachel. You're good. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for giving me the time. I know we tried. We were playing phone tag back and forth, but I definitely appreciate the time you're giving me. Thank you so much. Okay. I hope this is good. Yes, definitely good. Definitely good. <laughs>